Hello and welcome back to another edition of the world-famous Driving You Crazy podcast. As always, I'm one of your hosts for the show, the traffic anchor for Denver 7 News. If I can say that correctly, my name is Jason Luber. There you go. Very well done. I am the one true pedestrian advocate in Denver, Joseph Peters. That is exactly right. The one true pedestrian advocate. That's correct. There you go. Well, a woman in Racine, Wisconsin, Joseph. We have to start this way. Uh, Racine, Wisconsin, if you didn't know, is just south of Milwaukee. Well, she experienced some extreme pain at the pump the other day when she filled up her car at the new BP gas station in town. Now, according to police reports, the woman came to the police station to report that she pumped six gallons of gas into her car and was charged more than $60. A glimpse into the future. (laughs) Not sure about that. The report shows that she went to the BP and purchased six and a half gallons at $9.99 for a total of $64.67. Well, so when the woman went into the BP store, talked to the clerk, the clerk told her that the gas station was actually not yet open for business. That explains a lot. I don't know why the gas pumps were working if they weren't officially open for business. (laughs) Have you ever been lucky enough to get to the gas station when the price is set incorrectly in the opposite direction? No. When it's 45 cents a gallon instead of 450. No, I've never been that lucky. I had a professor that was that lucky, walked away with $90 of gas for $9. (laughs) There you go. Police told the woman to dispute the charge on a credit card and also worth her bank. Pretty (laughs) much said. They pretty much said, all right. (laughs) Thank you, ma'am. You'll be on your way now. Just tell them it wasn't you. It'll be fine. All trains in and out of Munich the other day were stopped for over an hour as police searched for a drunk man who called police for help after he woke up in a container and he didn't know where he was. Well, he was in a container. But he didn't know where in the train station or train yard he was. The 25-year-old man said he had been so drunk when he entered the container that he was not sure where it was in the train yard. So police shut down all rail traffic and searched train by train, eventually finding him an hour later. Don't they have GPS technology that's supposed to just, boom, pinpoint him and we're good to go? Yeah, you would think so. If Uber can find you, why couldn't the police find you? Very good question. Uh, 86 trains were affected. There were a total of 37 cancellations, 21 partial cancellations, and that man faces trespass-related charges. That's not just drunk. That is rip-roaring, crazy, blackout drunk. That's the best kind of drunk. (laughs) Well, uh, Joseph, we talk a lot about those uh, interesting stories. We also talk about serious stories here on the podcast, one of them being that uh, investigation that's going on down in Arizona Mm -hmm. about the Uber death car that hit the woman who was crossing the street when she was holding her bike, and the Uber car, driverless car, hit her. Now, of course, the driver that was supposed to be paying attention wasn't paying attention. Correct. Well, that investigation is actually going on right now, and there's a source that's close to that investigation that says that the fatal cause, the, the cause of the fatal crash appears to have been at the level of the software inside the car, specifically a function that determines which objects to ignore and which ones to look out for. Now, remember, this is the same company that told us it was because the driverless car driver wasn't paying attention that the crash happened. And now we're getting contradictory information. Exactly. Because they say the only possibilities, at least a source says, the only possibilities that made sense were, A, a fault in the object recognition system that may have failed to classify the woman crossing the street and her bike as a pedestrian. But it seems unlikely since bikes and people are among the first thing the system should be most competent at identifying. And you would think as long as they identify an object in the road, they're going to try to get around it or stop in front of it. Or B, fault in the car's higher logic, which makes decisions about which objects to pay attention to and what to do about them. 
No need to slow down for a parked bike at the side of the road, for instance, but one that's swerving into the lane in front of the car is cause for immediate action by the driving system. This mimics human attention and decision-making and prevents the car from panicking at every new object detected. We see a lot of this with uh, um, flocks of birds that they had problems with with the uh, detection system, determining that was just individual birds and not one big object that was flying next to the car. Some of this stuff where the human judgment really comes into play is what's causing problems for the computers. Now, the source says that Uber has determined B was the problem, specifically that it was the system that was set up to ignore objects and that it should have attended to the woman as it seems that she had not been detected at all and was considered a false positive. In other, in other words, the car deemed her something to not look out for. That's not good. No, that's mm-hmm. an understatement. Autonomous vehicles have you know, superhuman senses. They have the LiDAR that stretches out hundreds of feet in pitch darkness. They have object recognition that tracks down dozens of cars and pedestrians at, at once. Radar and other systems to watch the road all around it. But still, all these senses are subordinate to a central brain, a central processing unit, really, that takes all that information from the cameras and the sensors and all that stuff and combines it into meaningful pictures of the world around it and then supposed to make decisions based on that picture in real time, just like our brain would. But our brain being human brain, we can make those decisions pretty fast. Correct. Just like we were taught in third grade, the human brain is special and can't be replicated by a computer. Right. That's a, This is the hardest part f- for any of these automatic cars to, to recreate. Doesn't matter how good your eyes are if your brain doesn't know what you're looking at or how to respond to that stimuli properly. Doesn't matter if you're human, if you don't know what to do when you see something that you're supposed to. If you, if you see an arrow coming towards you, you should probably duck. Yes. Right? Correct. Or, or you're going to get stuck by the arrow. Uh, how a car can identify everything is, is really going to be a key to how these vehicles will succeed moving forward, I think. Um, we need just, I guess, smarter supercomputers, I guess, before we can really get a lot of these cars on the road. But these are going to be the little hiccups, the growing pains, the learning bumps, if you will. I mean, well, this is the point in the technology where the human brain is still superior to the computer. And and I guess the question is, when is that no longer going to be the case? When is the computer going to get things right more often than the human brain does? Are you willing to lose your life for the advancement of automatic kind? No. (laughs) I don't think anybody is. No, of course not. But there are probably going to be more accidents and more deaths along the way, unfortunately. It's true. So, anyway, as the world becomes more inundated with these self-driving cars, there are going to be many more changes. Not just with the cars themselves and how well they do, but some big changes where we live and work. Thus affecting the real estate market. We're having a real estate explosion here in Colorado, where housing prices are going through the roof and it's really tough to find uh, good, cheap places to live. Impossible. Yeah. I mean, it's just flat out not possible when the average home price is above four hundred thousand, and there aren't houses on the market that are under three hundred thousand. And one of the questions worth considering with automatic cars: Could these self-driving cars mean public transit and the value of the real estate around these public transit hubs? Really, could they actually be going down in the future? There's a term in the transportation world. They call it transit-oriented development, TOD for short. 
Now, it's a development that mixes residential and business and leisure space within walking distance or right next to a public transportation station. Usually it's a train station. Sometimes it's a bus hub, infrequently at a single bus stop. We have them all over Metro Denver along the light rail line. You see them also in Portland and other places where they have especially trains. What's interesting about that is that when they're talking about it for what we're talking about purposes, they're measuring it against this all of the bus stops and all of the rail lines. So they're giving themselves credit for having a lot of development within the walking distance of a bus stop because they're counting all these individual bus stops on side streets that you might not even see if you were an average passerby. Now, the proximity of office and residential buildings to public transit hubs has traditionally been seen as adding value to the property by making commuting easy, especially by younger people who might not own their own car. Now, it's possible that the availability of driverless vehicles in the future could become one more reason that people don't buy a car, thus making proximity to public transportation at least as valuable as before. But there's another possibility, too. The introduction of driverless vehicles could make access to public transit less important to commuters. And that could have a major impact on these transit-oriented development. It's, It's already tough to get people to ride the bus, less tough to get them to ride a train, Maybe about 15% on average or so ride transit over driving themselves to work every day. But when the cost-efficient self-driving car comes online in mass numbers, very few people might want to choose to still ride on public transportation. There's no reason why self-driving cars couldn't wipe out bus service at the very least within 20 years. Yeah. I mean, with driverless cars, driverless shuttles... They, they're all thrown into the mix. Offices and, and residential buildings that might have been previously seen as less attractive for commuters because of their distance from a transit hub could all of a sudden become more appealing than before because typically they're cheaper and now they're easy to use and easy to get to because of autonomous technology. And when you look through the lens of a real estate agent or a real estate developer, that appeal could translate into increased demand and rising property values in these places outside of these traditional high-value transit hubs. Now, the flip side is that the properties that commanded the high value due to their proximity to the transit hubs could suddenly find themselves losing all their value and becoming less desirable. In other words, you could have some places going up and other places going down where you have the total flip-flop. Even in neighborhoods already served by public transit, autonomous vehicles could potentially become a threat to the existing transportation system, and by supplementing public transit, or in some cases even replacing it, these autonomous cars could potentially render the existing public transportation system much less important, ultimately voiding the assumption that proximity to a transit hub actually boosts property values. Right there, you're making the city more usable. Well, you're giving it an opportunity to become more spread out, right? Yes. And the idea of having... Urban sprawl. But the big thing, I, I think, is that the idea of the train stop with ample parking around it so that people can drive to it and then catch the train from there is going to be out, is going to seem stupid in 10 years because that's not how people are going to do it. Anybody who takes a car to the train station will be taking a Lyft or an Uber. They certainly won't be parking their own vehicle there. No. And if you could just take that autonomous vehicle directly to work and just let it go off to do out the, go do the next job, then I don't even need to go to the train station. Well, we've talked about that in the past, and you think companies like Car2Go and things like that that already have their little cars on the side of the street are going to be jumping into the electric car on-demand business in no time. 
Right now, they're looking at changing the law in California that would allow for any new housing that's built within a half a mile of a train station or a quarter mile of a frequent bus service to be free of local regulations on the height of the building or the size of the building or the need for parking for that building. Because San Francisco, it's a relatively transit-rich transit city, and it would affect virtually the entire city. But it would also apply to other big cities like California, like in California, like Los Angeles, Oakland, San Diego. Basically, it's going to create larger residential buildings around these transit hubs and allow these developers to build those buildings faster without so much red tape. They're not allowed to do that right now. Great. Cheap apartments right next to the bus. Right. But those then will lose their value when we start to see this autonomous technology in the next 15, 20 or so years. Well, theoretically, I mean, the the, the transit hub, the, your train station or your bus stop, could very easily just become the the um, storage post for autonomous cars, correct, right. or the storage. The other big change with self-driving cars is that need for parking. For those of us who drive to work in the morning... They usually try to park at our office or as near the office as possible, where the cars usually sit unused until we're ready to head home at the end of the day. Now, the average privately owned car is in use just about 5% of the day, spends most of its time just parked, and many people argue that owning a car and just parking it is a waste of space. I like having the freedom to use my car when and and how I want to use it, that it's always there at the ready. Um, For me, that's worth it. To know that it, it sit, I, I could let it sit there for months on end, but at yep. least I know that it's there ready to go if, if I want to use it. Anyway, it's estimated there are 500 million parking spaces consuming more land than Delaware and Rhode Island combined. Now, in New York City alone, parking covers the equivalent of two central parks, but that could change when autonomous vehicles roll into action. When, when your self-driving car drops you off, let's say it then drives home, waits for you there, comes back and picks you up, or it could get just stacked up in a vertical parking garage, you're going to have all this extra space that's available for development. And one consulting firm estimates that autonomous vehicles could reduce the need for parking spaces by more than 61 billion square feet. That's that's an insane number. And that's absurd. It's because driverless cars could potentially pick people up from their homes, drop them off at the office or the mall or wherever, leave to, to go park in a less primed area, or like a taxi doesn't even need to park, it just kind of moves to the next customer or the next trip and, and reduce the number of parking spaces that are needed. And it could really have a mixed effect on commercial real estate. Imagine a mall where you don't have all that parking around the mall and you have actually other developments around a mall. Park Meadows Mall, which we have on the south side of town, one of those perfect examples where it's surrounded by huge parking lots. Right. Well, and even the Cherry Creek Mall that I think does a very good job of laying out its parking has these wide open lots as well as the vertical parking garage. And you would think that it would make more sense to take some of these self-storage facilities and just convert them to car storage facilities. Right. And make those into the you know the, the garages of the future. Yeah, that sparks construction development on those sites of these existing parking lots. On a larger scale, in densely packed cities like New York, where land's at a premium, a, a, a diminished need for parking lots and garages, imagine the, the effect there on the supply and demand equation where you could stop building these parking garages and then start building more housing units in Manhattan where they desperately need it. Mm. If there was going to be a sudden influx of land available for re- redevelopment, it could go a long way to make it a buyer's market in those places. And then to expand the whole self-driving car thing and parking issue, I got an email from the CEO of Ace Parking. It's one of the nation's largest parking operators. He said that ride-sharing services like Uber and Lyft right now are already having a negative effect on parking. 
His name is John Bar uh, Baumgartner, and he says that demand for parking at hotels in San Diego has dropped by nearly 10%, while demand at the restaurants and the valets that park the cars, that is down 25%. He says the biggest drop has been at nightclubs, where demand for valet parking has dropped by 50%. And they say it's mostly because people are now getting dropped off because of Lyft and Uber and, and, and the like. Ace Parking Executive told the San Diego Union-Tribune that it's seen similar declines at 750 parking operations around the United States, and the company is focused really on using technology, whether better parking scheduling or booking options or whatever, to remain viable. I mean, how are they going to remain viable if people don't need their cars parked They're not. Anymore? They're that, not. That's the real question. Who, who drives to a nightclub? Nobody, especially if you're going to be drinking. I mean, I, that as a maybe that's a millennial thing to say, but I cannot imagine why you would ever drive yourself to the bar and need the valet parking. And we've seen, especially here in downtown Denver, a lot of these parking lots, these just surface parking lots, they're bought up. They're they're a lot of money is paid for these lots, and then they're replaced by a high rise building. The city likes it because they get that in t- increased tax revenue. A huge number of jobs increase there. And they just straight up like building. Yes, and they real. like exactly. I only see this accelerating as as years to come when we see fewer and fewer parking spaces and more and more building in those areas. It is important to note though that usually when those high rises go up, they come with four or five floors of parking, and so you're actually expanding the number of available parking spaces. The problem is that all those spaces are reserved for residents of that building. Coming up, when you get in a plane, it gets a little stuffy in there, right? Absolutely. And there's probably one really bad way to try to get some fresh air into the plane. I'll explain what one guy did. That's coming up as the Driving You Crazy podcast continues. More of the Driving You Crazy podcast coming up. I love the morning team. I love watching you, and I love watching Lisa and and Mitch and everyone. I think you guys, honestly, and I'm not just saying this standing in front of you here, you guys have a great connection, and you make me laugh. That is the most important thing. Like, I was here a few weeks in, and when you guys did the May the 4th Be With You, I was so proud to be a part of this newsroom because I was like, that is so awesome because I have such a weird sense of humor and just love laughing that that made me laugh. And I was just so proud of that. Connor Wist, only on Denver 7. We're trying new things. We're uh, adapting to what the viewers want. Um, it's exciting because we are experimenting a little bit. We're trying to bring different stories that people aren't going to see on other news programs that kind of have gotten stuck in their ways. Um, and because we love this city. I'm from here originally. I grew up here. My family has very, very deep ties here. And um, I care about the news that affects my family, that affects my friends, that affects my community. And I want other people to, to care about it as well. Megan Lopez, only on Denver 7. Welcome back to the world-famous Driving You Crazy podcast, where we're going old-timey right now. This is some old-timey music that we're coming back from the break. 
with. Anytime I listen to music from this age, I think about milkshakes, ice cream, socials, and Archie comics. You never get old-timey music from any other podcast, I'll tell you that. That's true. We are the old-timey podcast music break place. But stay tuned for the old-timey music podcast coming to you exclusively for Endeavor 7. (laughs) Well, describing the high-visibility pyrotechnic devices, sweet yet earthy, a 20,000 candle power blend of shea butter and essential tree oils, Bath and Body Works unveiled its new soothing eucalyptus road flare. What better way to calm your nerves and divert traffic from your damaged vehicle than by igniting our new eucalyptus-scented road flare, said Senior Vice President of Marketing Amanda Kahn, adding that each canister was accented with a luxurious hint of lemon to heighten alertness and promote well-being in distraught motorists as they wait for a tow truck or ambulance. The balance and harmonizing 2,400-degree flame is guaranteed to burn for at least 40 minutes, so whether you're stranded on a remote stretch of highway or the police are too busy responding to more serious matters, you can breathe in deeply and relax in the state of spa-like comfort until help arrives. Mm. The company added that if the fragrance performed well, the company would release it later this year as a roadside memorial candle. Oh. <laughs> of course, that was from The Onion. Beautiful. <laughs> I would like to see a Bath and Body Works soothing eucalyptus road flare. <laughs> the eucalyptus is the best part. The yeah. road flare, eh, take it uh, or leave it. Well, when you're stuck on a plane, sometimes it gets a little stuffy in there. So if you open a, the vent above your head to get some of that fresh air, it's okay. It's not great. That wasn't really enough for one young man on a crowded plane in China. He wanted some fresh air, so he went to the extreme and opened up the plane's emergency hatch that triggered the inflatable escape slide. You're not supposed to do that. The plane had just landed, and he said it was really hot and not comfortable in there. So he did what he thought would help out all the passengers. He turned the lever of what he claims he thought was a window, only to see the whole section of the fuselage door pop out right in front of his eyes. He says he panicked only when the door fell out after he pushed the handle, and after calming down the passengers, some of which panicked after seeing the hatch pop open and the emergency slide inflate, the flight crew called the police. The man was held for 15 days for the unauthorized removal of aviation facilities and given a fine for about $11,000. $11,000? $11,000. I think he's getting off easy. <laughs> you really th- that's I a lot of money! Look, man, don't be opening the door on the plane. I don't care if it's landed. Like, let the flight crew take care of that. To make matters worse, he, he might be put on the travel blacklist. Good. Like, he's, he, I mean, really, he might not be able to fly again! He's done! Enjoy boats, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> those hatch those if you see those hatch levers they don't look anything like a like a latch to open up a, a, a window yeah, i mean they kind of like you've seen the emergency the uh top windows on buses right and they have the big red lever that you pull to open it up i could see where you would mistake a large red handle on a plane for the same sort of thing this is the same kind of guy that would open up a door on a submarine it's true well, it's tough to sleep on a plane, too, isn't it? Uh, for some people. Even if you have a window seat, it's really not the most comfortable place to even get a short nap. Got to get a neck pillow. Well, Airbus has announced a partnership with Zodiac Aerospace, a company that develops equipment and systems for aircraft cabins, 
And they're trying to develop these sleeping areas for passengers that will enable them to comfortably nap during long flights. The sleeping areas will be designed as modules that can be swapped in and out in the place of regular cargo containers. So these are basically underwear that you would think the seats go in the in the aircraft. So like coffins. Well, kind of. The sleeping quarters would be similar to the ones that you might see in a passenger train. One design that I saw had a pull-out sofa in it in this room and a couple of chairs with a giant screen on the wall so you could watch your shows. Uh, it was accessed by stairs from the upper level, and they actually had a kid's module that they showed that would be accessed from a slide to a playroom. Now, I didn't see any other way for the kids to get out, so maybe that would be good for some parents who have kids that might be a little bit unruly. Put them down the slide, and then they have to stay there, and then how they get out, you never know. <laughs> it's a great option for some parents. Another design I saw had a hallway right down the middle, and these bunks to either side with just basically enough room for a bed, and, and that's about it. This is like a sleeping pod. You might have seen these sleeping pod hotels in Japan. Mm-hmm. Yeah, similar to that, where you just walk down the stairs, you go through this thing, and then you just get, I mean, it's really only enough for you to lay down, and, and then there's a little curtain that, that comes across. So, I mean, but if, if the plane hits turbulence, and it's like a bad bit of turbulence, you're getting thrown. Well, probably, right? yeah. Like, if you're laying vertically, you're getting thrown, and what, I mean, what if it's hard enough to throw you straight up into the ceiling? Well, hopefully it's padded. Well, okay, that's fair. <laughs> Airbus says replacing the cargo containers with a sleeping berth isn't tough or hard. It's not a bad process, explaining that it can be done during a typical turnover between uh, flights. Airbus has previously worked with Zodiac Aerospace to offer lower deck re- uh, resting facilities for crew members. And what the airlines would like to do is probably charge an extra premium for these sleeping compartments. It really hasn't been announced what they would charge, but you know it's going to be an extra fee. I have a feeling it's still going to be way out of my price range, though, so I'm just going to have to figure out a way to get comfortable and coach. I mean, you just could not pay me enough to do this. It's a padded coffin on an airplane. Well, kind of. I'd rather be sleeping. (laughs) I'd rather be sleeping comfortably and not have any idea that we're going into uh, the Everglades and going to be buried into 10 feet of muck. I would rather wake up with a crick in my neck from sleeping in a chair than take a slide down to a playroom coffin (laughs) and like not have any sense of up. There's nothing you can do. There's nothing you can do when you're when you get in the plane. You you leave all control up to the pilots. and the autopilot. I just can't, and I'm telling you, Jason, I know I'm not alone on this. Yes, you are. <laughs> well, maybe you're not, because there are so many Maybe on crazy this podcast, flyers. but that's because there's only two of us. Well, yes, <laughs> there's that, too. So Expedia, they just came out with results of their 2018 aero, uh, airplane and hotel etiquette study. It's a good one. Beautiful. They call it a deep dive into their travel behavior. Now, they say the average person takes five flights per year and spends 14 nights in a hotel. It's not surprising that people have strong opinions about how other passengers should behave, right? (laughs) Now, although everyone has their own unique pet peeves, the top three things most people can't stand are seat kickers, barefoot passengers, and excessively chatty or loud travelers. What's wrong with barefoot passengers? Oh, they're gross. For the fourth year in a row, more than half of global respondents identified the passenger who constantly kicks, grabs, or bumps your seat as the most annoying. With the average amount of leg room decreasing on, on these uh, airlines, it, it's it's going to get worse and worse. And it's going to remain, I'm sure, one of the most commonly and most hated behaviors while traveling. And now, Expedia says travelers might find some relief against seat kicking by upgrading seats or choosing a seat in front of an exit row. 
or join the 62% of travelers who politely notify airline staff about the annoyance and save themselves hours of irritation. Uh, nobody does that. No. Absolutely not. Nobody does. So here are the uh, here, the official list of the six worst type of flight passengers in this Expedia survey. Number one, the seat kicker bumper grabber. Number two, the aromatic passenger. I think that's the polite way to say they smell. True. Stinky. Number three, the inattentive parent. That's number one. That's the worst. Control Sometimes you can't help it. Sometimes the kids are uncontrollable. A lot of the times it, it, they are controllable because you think about it as a parent. I, I know how to control my you know kids in that way. I don't need a couple of nine-year-olds playing tag in the aisle. No, you don't need that. I'm trying to get from Newark to Boston. That is ridiculous. Come on, man. Number four, personal space violators. Number five, audio insensitivity. I guess you're listening to your headphones too loud, right? And number six, people with bare feet. Over 90% of global respondents agree that it's not okay to be barefoot during a flight. Look, I have a phobia about this. Now, it's not really not. I mean, yeah, partly because it's gross. But I'm a guy who spent over 8,000 flying hours in a helicopter. I was always taught to wear footwear that will stay on your feet in case of an emergency. Because if you crash or have a hard landing or whatever, you want to have some good footwear so you can run away from the crash site. That, that safety measure is moot if the plane goes straight down into the ground and there's nothing left of you but a pile of rubble. But if I was uh, in with Captain Sully landing on the Hudson, I'm going to want some footwear that I can actually have on my feet so I can get off of the plane and off to safety. Are you better off in that situation wearing flip-flops or just being barefoot? Well, maybe if you're in the Hudson, maybe it's better to kick off the, the flip-flops and swim for it. Mm. Imagine all the poorly dressed passengers on that plane <laughs> who were thankful that they had their lives saved but were very stressed out about having to get out of the plane in the middle of the Well, Hudson. all those women with their, uh, you know, with their uh, sandal shoes. And all those men in their high heels, man. Yeah. Well, Expedia, as part of this study, also created the list of the worst hotel guests. They are the inattentive parents, the in-room revelers and the hallway hellraisers, the complainers, the partygoers, and the bar boozer. I think I would lump all of those in with all the party people like as one big group. If you did that, that would be at the top of the list by, by a long way. When I was playing hockey growing up, all the parents used to uh, hang out after... The kids went to bed, and I didn't realize at the time what a bunch of hardcore drinkers they all were. Oh, yeah. Everybody. Just par- parents just like to get wasted on these trips with their kids. Man. Oh, yeah. That, it happens all the time. All the time. Other interesting parts of the study were nearly 90% of Americans prefer to keep, themse- keep to themselves during a flight. To pass the time while flying, Americans would rather sleep than talk to other passengers. Amen. of Americans dread sitting next to someone who talks too much. A little chit-chat is fine, but enough already. Yeah. I mean, just, you know, a little bit of here and there. No, I... And then keep to yourself. I want to sleep, and frankly, I I don't even want a little here or there. Let's just nod at each other and go about our business. (laughs) At a hotel, 75% of travelers deem freebies, like Wi-Fi, breakfast, resort credits, free parking, room upgrades as very or somewhat important when booking a hotel. I just want a TV that has one of those extra HDMI cable inputs and Wi-Fi access for my Roku because I like to bring my traveling Roku and it it really helps out. 
Do they have USB access at this point? All these TVs and no, no, the uh, the extra HDMI. So either I'll That's unplug. Yeah, so I'll, some of them have the two inputs because they all usually have the flat screen TV. So mm-hmm. they'll have the extra HDMI input. So I just bring an extra cable with. Me. I mean, as recently as seven years ago, when you were using the red, white, and yellow cables, that just wasn't the case. Like you weren't able to bring your own. Entertainment you could, right? Device, yeah, it wasn't. Yeah. It wasn't as easy as like yeah. having a Roku right now. Uh, twice as many Americans would volunteer their seat on an oversold flight in exchange for a free voucher compared to other countries. Gina and I did this once. So we were, uh, before we had kids, we were, we were flying United from Fort Lauderdale. They gave us, they asked if we wanted to be bumped, and we said sure, because they gave us a voucher for a free flight. They also put us up in a hotel room, and they gave us transportation from Fort Lauderdale in the morning down to Miami where the where our our rescheduled flight was going to take off. Right. And then we took that free flight to San Francisco, parlayed it into another free flight. So it worked out to actually be three three for one. But that was years ago. Before we had kids, we wouldn't do that now with kids because we just want to get going. Amen. Only one in four travelers would pay to upgrade their seat, while even fewer would pay for in-flight access to the internet. I like internet on the plane. I don't believe that there's less than tw- a quarter of people who would pay for in-flight internet access. I I, I like internet access. It it really helps me out. Who who is who who isn't paying for? Well, I think because they don't want to pay for. I don't want the the eight or nine or ten bucks for it. I think that's what the deal. Oh, is. that's completely worth the investment. Because uh, I like to I like to track while we're flying mm-hmm. on my app there uh, across the gro- uh, across the globe. Travelers are most annoyed to find these things in their hotel room: bed bugs, a used condom. Ugh. Cigarette smoke or a foul smell. Dirty surroundings are always the main reason travelers request to switch a hotel room. I would have to add city noise or road noise to that list or elevator noise that to, to that list as well. See, we stayed one time in New York City at this hotel room that happened to be right over a fire station. That was tough. That's about as that's when road noise would be enough of a reason oh, to move all but, uh, night long. Bed bugs, I think, are enough reasons to move hotels, not hotel yes. rooms. <laughs> More than half of the travelers rarely or never sanitize items like the TV remote, the phone, or wear shower shoes to protect their feet in the room. I wear shoes. Those those rooms, those floors are dirty. Right. According to the Expedia survey, South Koreans are the most likely to get drunk on an airplane. Thai and American travelers round out the top three. I think especially to Vegas. Especially to Vegas. Travelers typically recline their seats for two reasons. If it's a long flight like three hours or more, or when going to sleep. And a quarter of Americans say they never recline their seats because it's rude. That's me. That's me too. I do that. Europeans tend to be more likely to ask fellow passengers to unrecline their seats. I would never do that. I wouldn't do it either, even though I get bugged by it. I do too, but I, I would rather just suffer in silence than be like, yo, bro. 54% of people agree it's okay to wake snoring passengers up. And when it comes to passing a sleeping passenger, most don't hesitate to wake him up and ask him to move. Uh, about one in three travelers still check in at the airport and not online. That, I, that stuns me. That's weird. About half of American travelers check in online for their flights. And even so, only about 30% of them use a mobile boarding pass. I still like the paper, board, paper ones. I, I'll agree with that, yeah. I, I, because I've done it both ways. But then the TSA guy stamps your screen on your phone with that little stamp instead of the paper. Th- ha ha ha. <laughs> uh, they're a little bit hard to clean off. Huh? And finally, most travelers admit to hiding valuables from housekeeping and taking items from hotel rooms to keep them safe. I've done that. Of course, I've done that. 
I take, I, you know, if I have something really valuable, I'll keep it with me. Absolutely. Or I'll hide things in my clothes or my shoes when I leave the room. I never use a hotel safe. I think there's like a, um, there's like a universal password, I, and I think it's oh, all zeros. Is, yeah. I think it's all zeros or all ones. Because the, if the hotel staff, if, if somebody forgets their password, there has to be some kind of universal way to get in there. And I think it's all zero. So try that out when you go to the uh, go to a hotel. Can't wait. <laughs> but you know what? I'll do. I'll I'll put it. I'll put things in in weird places, like in the vent, air vent, or like on the uh, uh, um, ironing board. You can hide stuff in that. Nobody touches the ironing board. Nobody. That's true. Under the couch. Oh, yeah, nobody looks under the couch. A maid's not looking under the couch. What I I love these bougie hotel rooms you stay in that have couches. Well, sometimes they have a couch. I mean, or a chair, or something. Must be nice. <laughs> well, I'm not staying somewhere where they have a dead body outline on the on the carpet, or a big where, blood stain. Where do you think I'm staying, Jason? I don't know. Somewhere Jeez. where there's bullet holes and a pool cue sticking out of the wall. Jeez. Seriously. Anyway, that's. There you go. That's survey from Expedia. Thanks, Expedia. Dot com. Oh, wait, that's Yahoo. Or that's somewhere, anyway. Uh, thanks again for being here on part of the podcast. We sure appreciate it. If you want to reach us, you can always get us on Twitter or on the email. It's all in the description. If you could please write a, uh, a little review on the old iTunes, that would sure help us out a ton. Five we, stars. Yeah, we need some uh, more reviews and uh, more comments there on uh, on the podcast for, for iTunes because it, w- it would really help out the whole thing. Yes, sir. But until next time, I'm Jason Libber, the traffic guy. I'm soothing eucalyptus road flare enthusiast. Joseph Peters. Be safe and as always, happy motoring.